That was beautiful, and it really sets the table for what we want to talk about today, because we want to glorify Christ, and we want to center ourselves on truth. In today's world, it is dangerous to be a follower of Jesus, and when you think of danger, we're always thinking about physical danger, and certainly if we were Christians in the Middle East or in Africa, in places there, we'd be thinking, yes, danger, physical, I've got to keep my family safe, where are we going to worship in safety? But what I'm referring to is is the terrifying prospect of being lured away from my faith. Because we live in a culture that wants to do that. John lived in a culture that wanted to do that. And as we look at our Christian response to God, if you want to put it that way, we must understand that there are centrality of Christ has to be our number one thing. And yet we're being pulled all kinds of different directions. And so here's what I want to do today. I want you to understand that as John battled Gnosticism, which was this thing of higher learning in his time, I want you to go and fight spiritual battles against those who want to draw you away from what you know to be the truth. And so this morning, I want you to remember what you've been taught. I want you to trust what you know. And we're going to remind ourselves what that means. But I want you to be free. I want you to abide in Christ. And more importantly, I want you to have eternal life. And so that's where we're headed this morning. So grab your Bibles. And we're going to turn to the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1021 in your pew Bible if you want to grab that. And by the way, thanks so much for being here this morning. I know it was not easy driving. I know that some of you were hiding your cars under trees and so forth. I'll tell you what, man. When I heard golf ball size hail, I drove my suburban right out in the middle of the road. I said, please hit it. <clears throat> I've been trying that for years. It hasn't worked. But I'm really glad you're here. And uh, we were actually talking about what would happen if the power went out earlier today. And we were trying to plan. And then, all, sure enough, right during uh, Justin's thing, it went out. But we're okay now. At least we are for the next few minutes. So we've been learning about authentic Christianity. And... We've been talking about what real faith is. We've talked about the idea that authentic Christianity is a Christianity that is humble, that serves, that confesses sin, and lives with Jesus. Not just under Jesus, which of course we all do as his Lord and Savior, but we abide in Jesus. And he then exists with us. And because of that, we get eternal life. And so now as we come to this section, we're going to find out about false teachers in John's day, what they were trying to get believers to do, and what John was trying to tell his church. So here we go, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 20. But you, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him at shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this is powerful stuff. And again, the backdrop is first century Ephesus. John is late in his life. He's writing to neighboring churches, many of which you read about in the book of Revelation. And as he enters his dying years as the last surviving apostle, what's on his heart is a defense against Gnosticism, which taught that you could gain salvation through knowledge, that you could find inner enlightenment. And so he he was so, so serious about drawing people back to the centrality of Christ because he had walked with Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. He had brought Mary with him to Ephesus, very likely died in Ephesus because John did what Jesus said. He, he took care of his mother. So this man knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, and he was committed to turning people toward Jesus Christ. And so last week, he challenged his readers, and he challenged us to choose Jesus over the things of the world, over the world system. And we, and we had one question in front of us last week. Is it going to be culture, or is it going to be Christ? And so John is still on this theme. But it changes a little bit here because now he's exposing false teachers and exposing what they teach. And he wants his readers to come to the table with truth so that they can live lives that are unimpaired and with joy. So let's start with what the believers actually knew. What what was John saying to them? He was reminding them that they knew Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Central, basic, but it's under attack. It was in John's day and it is in our day. And so if you look at the text here, 20 and 22 again, you see this. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father, and the Son. So the the basic issues that are in play here that John is really concerned about are twofold. Number one, that Jesus is one with the Father when Gnostics were claiming that his body was not actually divine, but a spirit entered him at his baptism, so there was no connection between the mind and the body. This crazy theology. And so Jesus is divine, John is going to. Tell us. And then the second thing is, no, Jesus and the Father are one and don't teach otherwise. And I want you readers to come back to the truth that Jesus is all of these things. So the first, the first one we need to deal with is 
reminding ourselves that Jesus is the Christ. That's Messiah, Christos, the the long-awaited Savior of Israel. Amazingly enough, this is the same Yahweh that is Israel's God, Jesus Christ is. When, when, when he was confronted about his age, and how could you know Abraham? Because Abraham was I am. I am is the Hebrew God, Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the King. He is God. He is every bit the Christ. We have to remember that. We have to stand true to that. Because our culture wants to dismantle him and make him human so they can somehow understand him or put a bow around him or more likely to control what we do because we always want to be king. That's, that's our pride issue that we fight. Now John wrote in his own gospel, not this book, but in the gospel of John, he wrote this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But there, but these have been written so that you may believe, here he goes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so you see this, how John is very consistent in his writing. John is caught up in this idea that Christ is the life giver. And so, as John was walking with Jesus and recording everything that Jesus did, the thing that kept standing out to John was this idea that Jesus offers eternal life. And John was really enamored with that. I had a chance to preach through John two or three years ago, and it was awesome because you kept coming back to the same theme over and over again. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And that's what John is trying to get his readers to, to, to stand on and, and move into the center on. The second truth that was under attack that John wanted to put right is that indeed Jesus and the Father are one. They are one person. In the, in the Gospel of John, you remember that Jesus made that claim, I and the Father are one. How did people react? Well, they stoned him. And then he had to disappear to continue on his mission. Why did they stone him? Because they didn't want to hear truth. They had their prescription. They had the box. They had what they wanted religion to be and what their lives to be. And Jesus was banging down those paradigms. And they fought it tooth and nail. And when we as a church go out into the world and we have a mission to do and we get people saved, people are going to try to come and they're going to try to pound us into the ground. And we're going to say, no, we stand with Christ. We're in the army of Christ. We're warriors for Christ. There there is nothing worth living for outside of Christ. And so, why? Because he's the Christ and because he and the Father are one. This is a big deal. Because it gives credence to what we believe. And it also separates Jesus from anyone else. And so, you have to, in order to find joy... And freedom, you have to come back into the center and not play around with ideas that there can be some other way to reach heaven besides a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible is really clear on that. It can't happen. Because he is the only one that can give eternal life. And the beautiful thing about getting eternal life from Christ is that we gain his righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own. And the Bible tells us that when we are imputed righteousness, which means we have righteousness assigned to us, that it happens the moment of salvation. 
And so we don't have to work for it because it's there and it transforms us. This is the truth that John wanted his readers to know. And I know that many times we just want to work so hard to earn God's favor. We just can't accept this idea that somehow he loves me just the way I am because I don't love myself. So how could Jesus love me? And then we get into these these contests and we say to ourselves, you know, if I could just if I could just control my anger. If I could just get my finances in order, get out of debt. You know, get those church people off my back. If I could just gain more self-discipline. If I could if I could just be a better student of the Bible, you know, like I mean, I had a mentor one time who was in the navigators and I'd go meet him at like 6 o'clock in the morning at some restaurant in Tucson. And the guy would go like, how many verses have you memorized this week? None. Oh, I've got 2,000 right here, you know. Find a different mentor. Because <laughs> you don't need to hear that at 6 o'clock in the morning. But you think, you know, if I could just be a better Bible student, if, if, if I could just get over these vices, you know, like, man, these things that just distract me, then, I, then God could really love me. Then I could be acceptable. Then I, listen, stop playing that game. Because you already are loved. This is a central truth of walking with Christ. In, in, in Ephesus, it was the structure where you had to, you had to go worship at the temple of Diana. And you had to try to seek these higher knowledge things. That's not Christianity. Nor is it the prosperity gospel that somehow if we continue to gain status, we'll get more things. No, the Bible teaches one simple truth. Follow Christ. Serve Christ. Bow before Christ. Just remember the truth that you already know. You already know this. But the culture is attacking and Satan wants to pull you away. You all know this verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Well, then believe it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. We say we believe that, but do we really believe that? Because many of us are trying so hard. And what happens when you try so hard to earn the love of God is that you end up Drowning in shame because you can never meet that expectation. Because we are flawed, sinful human beings. And we might make some progress on our own. You know, we might stop swearing at the construction site or something. But in the end, the only righteousness that will carry us is the righteousness of Christ. And that is already yours if you're a follower of Jesus. You just have to trust that. You have to center yourself on that. And you have to find joy in that because that's what the joy of the Christian life is. And, and then when you, you begin to abide in it, you relish it. And you begin to see that it's consistent. It never leaves. The love of Jesus is always there. The real gospel is all about grace. And if you're on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or you're reading blogs, and there's any hint of works-based righteousness, it's not true gospel. Because the gospel is about grace. And I, I know what some people are thinking, well, this guy's really soft, you know, like, we got to get the... Argh, argh. No! 
That's the gospel. Grace. We don't like it because we want to earn it. Then we can feel good about ourselves. So here's what John's saying. Jesus is the Christ, Savior, King, fully God. And, and the sad part about this is that it was actually people inside the church that were pushing these lies. So what happened then is a serious challenge arose from inside the church. And so in John's case, we're not talking about outsiders. We're talking about wolves that were already inside the church. We see this in verses 18, 19, and then we're going to skip to 23. Notice as you read this that those pushing believers away from the truth came from within And again, belief in Christ is the linchpin of authentic faith. 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. And then down to 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That's a good verse to memorize. That's a good verse to post up somewhere in your refrigerator because that is the exclusivity of Christ right in front of you, and it cannot be denied. Now, if you look at this passage, it's a little confusing, so let's unpack this section. John here is talking about the last hour. And actually, in the Greek, there is no article with hour, so it literally reads, this is last hour. But he probably means by that, this is a last hour, meaning that history was entering a climatic era, human history was about to end. So, don't mess around, because the end is coming. And then the term antichrist here can also be confusing because you, many of you, like the early church, are waiting for this figure of evil in the end times, the man of lawlessness, Second Corinthians, or First, Second Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. Well, John was too, but that's not what he's referring to here. He's referring to the spirit of the antichrist that was already confusing and harassing the church. And I think if we look at what's happening around us within the Christian community, we can see the spirit of the Antichrist already trying to dismantle our faith. And I'm not talking here about methodology of worship. I'm not talking about one way to do church. I'm not talking about that stuff. What I'm talking about is teaching that directly affronts our basic Christian doctrines. And it's happening all around us. Our seminaries are teaching stuff that I would have been shocked 20 years ago to see. Now I just accept it. And when young men come through my my thing and they want to go to school, I know where to send them and where not to send them. It used to be you could say, oh, that's yeah, that's a good seminary, that's a good seminary, that's a good seminary. Not anymore. Because the, the academics have put aside many things of the faith. And this is a scary verse. Verse 23 No one who denies the Son has the Father. But the good news is that if you have the Son, then you have the Father. And so here's here's what's being attacked within the church. And it's scary to even say it's within the church. 
Number one, there is an attack on the exclusivity of Christ and salvation. There is a conversation going on at many different levels within the church of, is Jesus really the only way to be saved, or are there other methods? Can we find ways to put people or religious systems around Christ? There's an attack on the inerrancy of Scripture, or that Scripture has errors in it. And so... Kids are coming out of seminaries and Bible schools, and they don't even believe the Bible is true. There, there, there's an attack on God's design for marriage. That's a central theme for us, because that goes to how we are created in the image of God. That goes to how we see the world. That's a worldview issue. And these attacks are coming from within the church. And I'll guarantee you one thing, that... There are people in our neighborhood that will see Ridgewood Church and they'll, they'll say, oh, those people there, they're just those old Bible-banging Baptists. And I say, yeah, we are. Yeah. And why shouldn't we be? And I'll guarantee you one thing, that as long as we have the board we have here, godly pursuit of the, of the gospel and the Bible, we're not going that direction. We're just not. See, God agrees. Here comes the rain. So this serious challenge arose within the church. Now, but I do want to I do want to warn you about something here because there's a methodology involved with how we avoid getting sucked up in this. And here it is: we can stand firm by abiding in Christ. But with that comes a, a caveat that we, knowledge isn't the only thing, and we have to work it out in actions. But look at 24 through 27. The joy of a steadfast, steadfast faith comes through here. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you, if, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He's made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What is he talking about? Well, look at this. Look at the wording. What you have heard from the beginning. Remember last week, he was going through the family references, and he said, you older people, you've known from the very beginning the truth about Christ. And so he's referring back to that again. It's this idea of knowing Jesus. But then he introduces a very foreign concept to Baptists, anointing of the Holy Spirit. In verse 27. We don't really like that terminology. This is John's wording, not mine. Here's what anointing means. Anointing means that we allow the Spirit to saturate our thinking and our hearts and our minds. It means that We believe the Holy Spirit is already in us at the time of salvation. That's the transforming power in our lives. But the anointing of the Spirit is a person that comes and highlights and teaches. When you're reading the Bible and something just sparks, something pops out at you, that's the Holy Spirit. You are being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. 
It's the Holy Spirit that does that. Here's what John MacArthur said about this whole concept. John is not denying the importance of gifted teachers in the church, but indicates that neither those teachers nor those believers are dependent on human wisdom or the opinions of men for the truth. God's Holy Spirit guides and guards and guides the true believer into the truth. And so... We do need to be taught. We do need to sit under good teaching. But the Holy Spirit's there. If you don't understand a passage of Scripture, you can stop and ask the person who wrote it what he meant. And then you can come and hear me preach and find out the, the real answer. But no, here's the thing. We, are, we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. Because I think we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. He, he's, he's a powerful entity and we don't like the fact that we can't put boundaries around him because he does crazy stuff sometimes so i thought we just take this is actually going to take one minute holy spirit 101 here is a quick lesson on the holy spirit who is he first of all the holy spirit is eternal he's fully god and he is a person don't talk about the holy spirit as an entity he's a person he's part of the trinity fully divine and fully God. Secondly, he indwells and seals every believer at the time of conversion. So when you make the decision to follow Christ, then you are indwelled. Ephesians says it's like a seal for your salvation. Like the kings used to seal a letter. You couldn't open it. It's like what happens. You cannot be taken away from Jesus anymore. The Holy Spirit is that sealing agent. And then thirdly, his job is to convince the world of sin righteousness and judgment he magnifies the person and work of christ he regenerates indwells sanctifies strengthens and equips believers with spiritual gifts and leads them into all truth one big thing the holy spirit does is he he leads us to christ he leads us into truth and this is his probably his most important assignment as part of the trinity is to lead us to christ and then we relate to him through prayer, confession of sin, and through genuine relationship. And so you can have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. You, you, he's part of the Godhead. He, he wants, he's a person. He, he's not a dove that flies around. You know? And, and here's the last thing I want to just tell you is that the realization of life lived in the Spirit is one of great fruit and transformation that leads to Christ-likeness. This is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It comes and helps us to understand Scripture. So, there's a strong emphasis here on learning but letting the Holy Spirit teach. But here is a warning I want to give you. That if your goal is to simply know more and you're going to achieve knowledge, then you are like the Gnostics. You are like the people that John is refuting here. That is not the goal. Paul says that puffs up. It leads to pride. There has to be an outworking of this knowledge. And so as you sit down and read the word, and as you're, you're memorizing, and as you're going through your spiritual disciplines, ask God for an outworking of that. Because if it's just to make yourself know more, then you're going to be an arrogant, judgmental Christian. Because there won't be any actions to follow it. And I think what non-believers are tired of are know-it-all Christians. And what they're looking for is somebody that can bridge knowledge into loving action. Because this book, after all, is all about love.
It's about how to love. So this is what we're doing at Ridgewood Church. We're going to take the knowledge. And let me tell you, you've been well taught here. Pastor Joel taught you really well for a long period of time. So many of you go to BSF. Many of you can out-Bible me. You know, you can, you can sit down with me and you know more than I do. I don't pretend to know everything about the Scripture. But what I will say is, then if we do know all of that, then we have to act on it. Or it becomes worthless exercise. And so what we've decided to do is go into the world and reach the world with community impact and, and, and through loving our community. And so you saw last week we started to commission community groups that are going to go into neighborhoods. And we're help, we want to help mops and, and reach them with store. And we've got a lady that stepped forward and said, yes, I'll help with a disability ministry. And so we're going to work really hard on that. Why? Because people need Jesus and our loving actions will guide them there. This is part of what it means to center ourselves on Christ, to act on what we know. And what Justin referred to earlier about what I want you to do, we'll talk about this right after communion too, but be ready. You'll notice, you probably already have, in the lobby there's two giant chalkboards there. And our mission statement is on each one. And if you're in, if you're ready, if you're mobilized to go out there and, and, and mean something, then I want you to sign your name to that. So that as people come to church, they can see that Ridgewood people, the congregation, is signing, I'm in on this mission. But I don't want you to do it if you're not in. Because I want to look at that board and go, wow, look at these people. I'm, I'm encouraged. So that's what we're going to do after. But the point of this is that in order to center on what we know, there has to be actions behind it. So... We're being challenged. Christ is central to our theology and our belief system. We're taught by the Holy Spirit. Actions come along with knowledge. And then we see finally here that the outcome of obedience to truth is courage. Look at verse 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in, the sh- in shame at his coming. If you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Righteousness is Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are righteousness. You notice there's nothing in Scripture that tells us we have the power to do this on our own. And what John is referring to here is that at the time of Jesus' coming, remember, the hour is coming. That we can stand with confidence before the throne of God at the believer's judgment, and we can stand there and know we ran the race. But only if we are abiding in Christ, and only if we have centered ourselves on Jesus. Jesus has to be the center of everything we do. The Holy Spirit's job is to magnify Christ. The Father has said, I'm giving him my kingdom. Glorify my son. It seems so simple, doesn't it? But we have to complicate it. Otherwise, we would feel like we're not really cool. I don't know about you. I'd rather be not cool and stand before Christ with confidence. So here's here's one, and it's easy for me to be not cool, so it's not a big stretch. Here's... Here's one action step I want you to do this week. Next time you have your devotions, which I hope is tomorrow, 
or later today. All you have to do is pray for anointing. Pray. If you don't feel comfortable praying right to the Holy Spirit, then pray to the Father and say, will you please send the anointing from the Spirit so that I might understand and be enlightened and my life might be changed. And more importantly, others' lives might be changed by what I read. Because we live in a fearsome time, dangerous time, a time when we are being challenged. And I am terrified at the prospect of being lured away from my faith. Because that brings brokenness and heartache. And for those who don't know Christ, and this is what motivates me, they will suffer in hell. We've got to get busy. We do. We cannot play church. Because people need Jesus. So we're going to go to the Lord's table, and I hope this gives you an opportunity to really think about what John has said here and what you believe and are you on the fringes or are you centered right on Christ and it's an opportunity to think that over and then confess sin that might have an effect on that. So let me pray and then we're going to take communion together. God, I just thank you for the time we've had to go into your word and I pray now as we go to the Lord's table that you would help us to just find truth and and joy in this. I pray, God, that you would help us to to as a community enjoy glorifying you and remembering your sacrifice for us. And we're going to use this time now to do what John said. We're going to center on you. We're going to center on what we know. And so I pray, God, that you would come into this, this practice we call communion and enrich us and help us to abide in you and help us to accept your lordship in our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. And so... What we're doing here at Ridgewood is we do the Lord's Supper, and this is a commemoration of what Jesus did for us. If you're not a believer in Christ, you can let this go. But if you are a believer, we invite you to come. And what we're going to do is just come down. We'll take the bread and take the cup. If there's someone that can't uh, because they're not mobile, just raise your hands or poke somebody next to you to come and do it. And then take the elements back to your pews so that we can take the elements together. So come now. And let's remember Jesus and what we know and praise Him for who He is.